As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and I've done a lot of embarrassing stuff in my life, but I've never been tackled, dispossessed, and conceded a howler at Wembley in the FA Cup. So I've got that going for me. On today's Weekend Review, Ryan Bailey will not be with us, but to keep his rhyming scheme introduction tradition alive, this past weekend saw Liverpool blitz a tired Man City team, who then somehow weren't as tired in the second half as it might have seemed. Chelsea booked their spot in the final with goals from RLC and Mount, despite the best efforts of Crystal Palace, whose defense was convincingly stout. In the land of Stop Me If You've Heard This Before, Spurs and Arsenal both lost and failed to score, while Manchester United got the W, but looked decidedly poor. There were important results in Germany, Italy, and Spain. Whilst Matthias Almeida has vowed never to return to San Jose again. <laughs> All that and more on today's episode. So let's head down that weekend review road. Joining me first, a man who takes back his recent praise of Zach Steffen. Isn't that right, Mr. Graham Ruffin? <laughs> uh, perhaps, yes. He had he had a, a bad weekend. A worse weekend than me. Certainly more a, a, an, an eventful weekend than me, but not, not better than me. And I didn't really do anything, so that's kind of saying something. <laughs> So that would be Graham. Rounding out our trio is a man who loves the MLS Chaos Roadshow. Say hello, our friend Joe. Hello, Taylor. Man, you have the rhyming on lock, as does Ryan. I think if this whole podcast thing doesn't work out for you, children's opera is high on the list of next activities for you. Wait, we went well, in two different directions yeah. there, You said children's author, and I said Coachella. Oh, but, yeah. You know, we could do both. Well, yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no law that prevents you from doing both of those things. Probably just not at the same time. But you can finish the book after you're set, I guess. Yeah. I do also think if we wanted to combine them, there probably is somebody who has read children's books on a stage at Coachella and everybody thought it was deep and meaningful. So yeah. I feel like I could I could find some combination <laughs> of the two, but I'm not sure we need to go down that route. Uh, I would prefer to stay in the land of soccer where I'm at least somewhat more comfortable. Let's talk about what happened this past weekend. Let's start with Manchester City 2, Liverpool 3 in the FA Cup semifinal. Joe Lowry, let's spend some time praising Liverpool because they played some lovely football in this one. Oh my goodness. Yes, they did. It was 
this game felt interesting to me coming after last weekend, right? Where we had that game in the Premier League between City and Liverpool and a ton of anticipation around that. And I would say maybe slightly less anticipation around this game just because, at least from my American perspective, the Cup is not quite as important. The FA Cup is not quite as important as the Premier League. But you come out of the gate and the players were flying. Liverpool was all over the field. They're in the standard clock 4-3-3. And they are shoving their press down City's throat over and over and over again. They're blocking off central midfield. They're having the fullbacks uh, who were who Alexander-Arnold and Robertson in this game. They're stepping them all the way forward to City's fullbacks when Man City are trying to build from the back. They're smothering Manchester City. And it was working, guys. They forced a bunch of turnovers inside the first 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes. The biggest one being that Mane goal off of Zach Steffen. We'll mention more about that later on. But from the start of this game, you could tell that Liverpool were up for it. They were energized. They were aggressive. They were clearly well-drilled in how they wanted to press. This was, in, in a lot of respects, a peak Liverpool performance, which was certainly aided by the fact that they had their first-choice 11 out there, and Man City certainly did not have their first-choice 11. Graham, I have thoughts on what happens after Liverpool presses. Uh, do you have thoughts on Liverpool's pressing game on the whole? I just thought that it was it was much more like them, wasn't it? Last week, last week we reflected on on how Liverpool hadn't applied enough pressure on the ball when when City had it, and that exposed a high line. And they had similar problems against Benfica in in the Champions League. And as Joe says, there they were they were just much more proactive out of possession. I think a lot of that was down to the fact that unlike City, who were in, involved in a bar brawl in, in Madrid in the Champions League during the week, Liverpool had rested a number of their forwards in, in particular. So Mane and Diaz in particular were lightning in terms of pressing from the front. And even when City were able to get the ball out, even when Stefan did manage to get a pass out from under his feet, um, Liverpool were were pinning them, pinning them in the corners, and the ball was being flipped down the line, and and with that, that was where the fullbacks had been pushed really high. So it just felt like in that first half, Liverpool were just, as Joe says, they they suffocated City in that first half, and even when they had the ball, they were moving it so quickly, and and uh, City, I'm not so sure, how, I'm not sure how to assess City's performance because, as I was saying before we started recording. A lot of it comes down, for, for me with City, it just comes down to the fact that a lot of their best players w came out of this team after the, the Atleti game. They're replaced by players who aren't as good. And then the players who stayed in the team, I think Foden and Cancelo, just were had their had their energy sapped by that Atleti game. So they weren't quite as, in, as intense and as sharp as they normally are for City. And, and that kind of is what it came down to. For me, you had a full-strength team who were high on energy against us. Uh, a second string team, I suppose you could say, who were low on energy and that yeah. kind of told in the end. It was instead of the unstoppable force meeting an immovable object, it was more of an unstoppable force meeting a pretty movable object in this game. Yeah. And I think the thing that that really stood out to me watching this one, because I watched it knowing at least knowing that Stefan had a howler, Man City lost the game. So that did frame the way I was watching it. And watching Liverpool press is always very fun. It's always really interesting to see how they do it and how they make their opponents' lives uncomfortable. But a thing that I think hadn't really stood out to me before until this game, for whatever reason, is how much Liverpool must spend time in training working on basically the unpredictable because so much of their game is just get a toe to the ball, just get a flick to the ball, find a way to disrupt the pass or the long ball or the shot or whatever it might be, and then react to the chaos that is created or to the uncertainty that is created. And in this game, Liverpool were first to every single deflected ball or or a sort of like 50-50 loose pass or anything like that. And the way they just react and the way the whole team 
is on it as soon as there's a turnover, as soon as there's an opportunity. I don't know how you train for that. It must just be like chaos <laughs> training. Maybe there's the Dortmund football knot machine well, involved. Who knows? But the way they're able to sort of uh, react to unpredictable situations and make them look very predictable consistently blows my mind. And I think to some extent blew Man City's mind in the first half. In terms of how they train for that, I like to think Klopp just kicks a rugby ball or a, <laughs> an American football, an NFL ball into the, yeah. into the sky and lets it bounce and the players have to react and just run run after it. Uh, it feels that way. Like that really is. I wouldn't be surprised if it was just like, you never know how it's going to bounce. So be on your toes the entire time. They must have a drill where they're not allowed their heels to ever touch the to- the ground or something like that. Whoever's last to the rugby ball has to clean Jurgen Klopp's glasses for a week. Oh boy. That's oh that's boy. the punishment. So you don't <laughs> want to be last. Those, those glasses are going to get dirty. He's not even wearing them anymore. He's got to have contacts, man. And that's a whole different level of cleaning. <laughs> yeah. You got to clean those contacts. Yeah. That's a whole big deal. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> Um, any individual performers we should talk about, Joe, when it comes to Liverpool and how uh, solid they looked. Luis Diaz, for me, stood out as yeah. being a problematic dribb- dribbler if you are a team trying to contain him. But I think drawing fouls, taking people on and just creating uncertainty for Man City. Uh, I really was impressed by him yet again for like the 15th time we've talked about him. Anybody else, Joe, you want to single out? One quick beat on Diaz before I move it to Trent Alexander-Arnold, which is always where I'm going with that question when we're asked about <laughs> Liverpool. I... I am consistently floored by how well Liverpool have succession planned. And I know we've talked about this before, but Diaz continues to be just this electric player. He's won a starting spot, right? He hasn't been involved in the club for barely any time at all. Like he's he's a new player to Liverpool in terms of his, in terms of that actual environment. And he is electric out there. Man, he he doesn't actually get on the box score in this game, but he is so effective on that left side. He's popped up on the right as well in in previous games, so I think he's better on the left. He is so good. And the fact that Liverpool have him waiting in the wings. They have Samikas, who was, I thought, really, really good against Benfica in, in large part midweek. They have so many players who can step in and do the job. And, and Diaz has taken that to a whole nother level over the last couple of months for Liverpool. Another player, Trent Alexander-Arnold, that I wanted to mention. He is electric on the ball. And we talked about uh, we talked about Liverpool's pressing up against Manchester City's buildup. Well, City also did a bit of pressing. And they also did a, a bit of defending in a 4-4-2 block like they always do. And Liverpool had some really nice possession moments in this game. You kind of have to, at least sometimes, to get three goals. And that's exactly what happened in this game for Liverpool. That third goal from Sadio Mane, it comes in the 45th minute. Trent Alexander-Arnold throws the ball into Mane, who chests it right back to Alexander-Arnold, who then hits a first-time switch on a rope over to Luis Diaz on that left side. Robertson then takes the shot. Liverpool win the ball back. And then it's a, a bit of combination play in and around the box. It's Diaz to Robertson to Thiago to Trent Alexander-Arnold again, who has suddenly popped up in a really narrow central position and shows quality like a, like a number 10. His versatility and his skill on the ball in possession is unreal. I, I don't think there's many fullbacks in the world who can do what he does right now. Maybe Joao Cancelo is, is the only other one that immediately comes to mind, and he was on the other side of the field in this game. I, I love watching Alexander-Arnold. I love seeing where he pops up, and I love seeing how much Liverpool funneled their attacking play through Trent Alexander-Arnold on that right side because he is just, he's a different breed as a fullback and he's so fun to watch and it was really, really good in this game. That the that ball for the, what was it, the third goal, I think it was? Yep. It, it's just, yeah, it's that just switch amazing. is unreal. It's unreal. Yeah. 
and and really like Luis Diaz uh, to go back to him for a moment. The, the, I was I was struggling to think of an analogy before we started recording, and one occurred to me that I'm sure he will love. But it reminds me of Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer, uh, where it's like <laughs> if you bring a problematic or like a dog with behavior issues into a pack that is steady and has kind of worked out all their dynamics, the the dog with behavior issues tends to kind of calm down and be a better dog because it's it gets the pack discipline. And it feels like with Liverpool, this is I promise this will connect. I think if you bring Luis Diaz into a team <laughs> where everybody is sort of, if not harmonious, then playing the same style on the same page, everybody reacts immediately to the the rugby ball being kicked into the circle. I think the player in question has to respond to that. And if they don't, then they don't end up playing very much as is the case with maybe Minamino, but with Luis Diaz, who clearly came in and just vibed with the squad and hit the ground running. I think that's what happens when you have a team that has such good chemistry, such good belief in what they're doing. And I think such presence in Jurgen Klopp in terms of the longevity of his managerial tenure that I think it allows you to just get everybody on the same, same page really quickly. It allows you to recruit the players that you know, will improve your squad and then emphasize the players that already are. And I think Trent Alexander-Arnold is a good example of the latter. And I think uh, Luis Diaz is a good example of the former. While I pause to try to figure out if I got that right, Graham, any individuals for Liverpool you would like to talk about? I think we should probably talk about Sadio Mane, given how, in relation yeah. to, to Luis Diaz, actually, his his role has changed for, for Liverpool in 2022. He uh, was excellent in this game, but not as a as a left winger, as his, as his, his normal position, or has been his normal position for Liverpool over a number of years. When Diaz was signed in, in, in January, many assumed that the Colombian had uh, been signed to either replace Manny, who actually hadn't had a, a great first half of the season, or at the very least give him competition for that left wing spot. But Manny, because Diaz has done so well in that left-sided position, Manny's been shifted into the number nine role, and he's adapted so well to that position. His, his work rate off the ball means Liverpool can, can press high, as we said at the, at the top of the show, and they certainly did that in, in this match. Um, and his, his movement inside the box has just improved and improved over time. I don't think he could have played this role when he first arrived at Liverpool, but just the intelligence that he's got now playing for this this, this Klopp team, this Liverpool team, means that he's he's pretty much as good as anyone is at finding space inside the box. And he's got the technique, obviously, to to convert chances in there, as he showed with his, uh, his second goal in particular, which was a, a very nice volley at, at the back post after drifting away to find some space. So he's he just is another reflection of this Liverpool team under Klopp, where... He's not really an orthodox player in an orthodox position. You, you maybe wouldn't have put them, him there if you were building the team from scratch. But now that he is there, he is he's perfect for this system. And I do wonder, Manny, uh, until uh, January, there was a lot of chat about maybe he moves on, maybe he leaves Liverpool, maybe he needs something to kind of just not take him to the next level because he's already at that level, but just kind of keep him going for the next phase of his career. And I think actually a positional change might be the thing that does that. And he looks very, very comfortable in that role. Graham, I'm glad you talked about his ability to find space because I think to some extent being able to find space indicates a constant ability to evaluate the situation, evaluate sort of developing situations and then find opportunities within them. All of this is setting up, Joe, that uh, Sergio Mane also able to identify when maybe a goalkeeper isn't entirely comfortable on the ball and then pounce on that opportunity and tackle him pretty effectively. You know, Taylor, I just don't know what you're talking about. I, <laughs> I don't remember any moment that was like this or that went viral on Twitter or that has had everybody talking oh, about it. So man. Drop the drop the bit, Joe. It's not funny. Uh, this is serious. It's 17th minute, Sergio <laughs> Mane cl- closes down. Uh, closes There's down. Zach Steffen. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, Taylor. This is high stakes matters. The U.S. is going to win the World Cup if, if they will if they get this sorted out. So it's it's Liverpool high pressing in the 17th minute. John Stones is playing right center back for Man City in their back four. Plays the ball back to Zach Steffen. Zach Steffen takes way too long on the ball. He can't get it out from under his feet. He kills the ball with his first touch, I believe, and that stops any momentum. So he's not taking that touch away from pressure, which is what you're taught to do in a lot of situations where you expect to play another pass to connect in possession. And as the ball is still under Zach Steffen's feet, you can see he starts to panic a little bit, as anyone would. Sadio Mane at this point is sliding in, and he puts the ball back. He puts the ball into the back of Manchester City's net. This this kind of stuff happens. This kind of stuff happens plenty around the world when teams try to play out of the back. Mistakes happen. The the challenge for Zach Steffen is the the technique was wrong, first of all. But it just feels like another mistake in a cascading list of mistakes for Zach Steffen. And I feel for him, to be completely honest. I no one should have to deal, I'm sure, with the amount of abuse and, and just awful messages that I'm sure he received on Twitter. But this this is the kind of stuff that Stefan has happened to him. And at a certain point, it's no longer a coincidence, right? I actually don't think I've ever seen a, a gaff of this level from Stefan. Most of the issues I've had with him in the past are shot stopping. And oh, we get to see that on the third Liverpool goal as well. So yeah. just not a good day for Zach Stefan. Add in the header that he gives away to Liverpool in second half stoppage time. I believe that's second half stoppage time. And uh, he has to make a, a save to bail himself out of that situation. Just not a performance that Zach Stefan's going to want to remember tomorrow. I, I also thought, Joe, that I don't think he covered himself in glory for the first goal either. I mean, maybe I'm being overly harsh because it is fine margins at this level. But I do think an elite level goalkeeper has the reactions, the reflex to maybe push up a, a hand. And if you look maybe. at where Kanati's header, again, I, I maybe I'm being overly critical because it is a close range header. But it, it does go right in the, the centre of the goal. It's not in a corner or anything. And I, sure. I just feel like maybe Ederson saves that. And so you could maybe be critical of him for, for all three goals. And as you reference, the thing with Stefan has always been, well, you know, his shot stopping's not so great. You go for Matt Turner. If we're turning this into a US sure. MNT Oh, we discussion. are, Graham. We are. And we are. We are doing that. Um, <laughs> but, but then, obviously, the distribution thing for City, I... I don't think is that much of an issue because Ederson nearly does something very similar in the game before and he, yeah. he gets away with it. He miscontrols a ball. He then passes it off his line with Diogo Jota, I think it was, sliding in. That very easily could have ended in a similar way. The problem for the US is that's a, that's a reflection of what you want Stefan to be good at and we've seen in recent qualifiers as well that his distribution has been poor. So what is, what's he kind of, what's he offering the US? And, and I don't want to be knee-jerk it's one poor match maybe if he plays more often gets more game time next season on in a loan or whatever some of those problems iron out but there are definitely um fair questions about Zach Steffen at the moment Joe wasn't it the Costa Rica game where you and I had the discussion about Stefan and what he could have done better for one of the goals where I think the argument was it's a header off of a set piece and he doesn't get his hands yep. up and doesn't get them to it fast enough. Yeah, that feels relevant to this conversation as well. I hadn't really thought about maybe how he could have done better for the first goal. I did wonder, though, uh, if maybe at first I wondered if there was like part of this was a tactical thing or a thing that he'd been instructed to do. Uh, with slowing the ball down. In the second minute, there's another uh, back pass to Zach Steffen from John Stones, and it takes a really long time for him to get on the ball. And even when he does, he slows it down and slows it down. Then he ends up going for the kind of medium diagonal out wide to Zinchenko, and that one he overhits by about 10 yards. It goes out for a throw. But I remember in that moment thinking, is this what they're trying to do? Are they trying to do that thing of 
you pass it back to the goalkeeper. He holds the ball. You know that Liverpool are going to press. So they come forward. You stretch them out a bit. Then you bypass that. And maybe it's a tactic. And then watching the howler uh, of a moment, it's not. It is just a bad touch. And then he panics. And you can see him, I think, in that moment, just completely because there's so much panic. I think he completely loses awareness of what is happening. And that's why I think he's kind of almost dumbfounded at the end when he ends up getting tackled. Cause I think he sort of blacks out and is just so desperately trying to get the ball out from underneath him. He forgets that somebody is barreling down on him and ends up tackling him. So Taylor, I was uh, sorry to, to, to yeah. jump in. I kind of see it the other way and I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not a psychologist by any stretch. So I'm, I am doing some full psychoanalysis here, but I almost feel like he's telling himself to be calm because that is what is expected of a Manchester City goalkeeper. He's thinking, okay, this is a bad situation, but Ederson would stay calm in this situation, so I need to stay calm and not look too flustered when actually a little bit of panic might have helped him because maybe he just flips that ball out to the wide, uh, to the wing. Yeah, sure, City lose the ball and Liverpool have a throw-in high, high up in the pitch, but that little bit of panic might have helped him where it's, it was almost like he was thinking about yeah. what's expected of a city goalkeeper and he was almost too even if that was artificial calmness that inside he's screaming to himself i need to do something here but actually he's he's thinking i need to play in a certain way here like yeah. the panic might have helped him outward panic might have helped him a little bit i th- that's interesting graham because I, I do sort of subscribe to the idea that on occasion when you tell your brain don't panic don't panic don't panic you're basically just sending the signal to the brain of there's reason to panic and yeah. so i wonder if maybe yeah telling himself like don't mess up don't mess up just be calm just be calm the brain just heard you might mess up panic <laughs> i don't know but either way it was really really just a bummer to watch from a U.S. perspective because obviously you don't want to have that kind of lingering talking point. It was, I'm sure, sad for him. And I cannot imagine, I spent the next five minutes watching to see what he did and how he responded. And there was little things like, I think they get a goal kick and he runs to one side to take it to like the right-hand side and then does like a no-look behind the back throw to somebody to take the goal kick from the other side. And in another world, that comes across as like, oh, look, he's already passed it and he's kind of like, being being loose and really what it looked like was a person desperately trying to look loose and look confident because they were still in their head about the mistake they had made and I felt bad because I think it will be a talking point and for me at least fairly or unfairly it's a thing that in a world cup I'm going to be nervous about if he's starting I will wonder what happens if he comes under pressure in the second half the same thing happens and it's a little bit better I think he's more alert to it but it still ends up being I think he either kicks it out of bounds or his kick gets headed back into play by Andy Robertson, but would have gone out of bounds otherwise. Either way, it was not a particularly strong game from Zach Steffen in his distribution and maybe in his shot stopping. But I would say he definitely wasn't helped, Joe, by Man City, who I thought looked completely not up for this game. Like, it just felt like a game that they thought, you know what? We're worn down from Atleti. Uh, Graham's talked about a little bit already, but I think it just it just seemed like they were not up for this one in the first 30 minutes. Stones gives the ball away a couple of different times. There's errant passes. There's loose passes. They can't play out of the press. They end up turning the ball over. They go long a whole bunch. It just felt like a very uncharacteristic Manchester City performance in the first half. You could see some of the same themes from the Man City-Liverpool game in the Premier League last weekend in this game, at least in what City was trying to do. Taylor, you mentioned long balls there. That's the first note I have for City in this game. They're trying to get runners in behind. They're trying to play over the top because that's what gave them so much success on Sunday, right? This past Sunday, a week ago now. That was really effective for them in that game. And it just wasn't 
as much in this one, right? They, they struggled to really control the ball and move it into spaces where then they could actually hit those long balls. So many turnovers in buildup. And, and Taylor, you highlighted some of that. And I mentioned that back when we talked about Liverpool at the beginning of the show. It took them, unless I missed one in the first maybe 60 seconds or so in this game, it took City until the 13th minute to have a really nice, clean bit of buildup that progressed the ball out of their defensive third and into midfield and into a good more stable attacking position, right? And and that wasn't for lack of trying. It wasn't like, oh, this is the first time we're actually going to sit down and try a breakthrough Liverpool. It was because there were there was turnover after turnover in in that phase of play. And then four minutes later, there's a turnover that leads directly to that money goal, and that's the Stefan turnover. So City looked shell-shocked to me coming out of here. I think Graham already mentioned this is not City's first choice team. At the same time, when you spend however much unfathomable amount of money on this squad, I think you certainly expect more out of the players that were on the field. The midfield maybe wasn't the ideal composition. Fernandinho is is sort of a he's a pivot player in that space, and Silva is a creator, and that's where he was used again. But Phil Foden was in that space a lot, and he's not necessarily someone that's going to give you the the ball progression qualities, at least with his passing, that that someone else in the City team might who was rested in this game and Kevin De Bruyne. So not a perfect situation for City. They did not play well, and I think they should be disappointed with how they played, given the still quali- the, the quality that they still had in this squad. That's fair, because I, I think looking at my notes again, my, my final note on this one would be in the 36th minute I had for the fourth time in this half, City have possession, the director cuts to a slow-mo replay of something that had just happened, and it cuts back, and Liverpool had possession. That felt like they just kind of kept turning the ball over, didn't have the kind of chemistry or the consistency that we've come to expect from them. Different story in the second half a little bit, but Graham, anything else that you wanted to note uh, from this game before we move on to the other FA Cup semifinal? I, I just think one of my takeaways from this performance from City was that they actually haven't, for all the money that they've spent and all the quality they, they clearly have, I don't think they've done as well at building their squad as, as Liverpool have because looking at this performance from City, it feels to me that to rotate at this level, they're, they're lacking a central midfielder for the, ro- the, the reasons that, that Joe mentions. There's that Bernardo Silva and Fernandinho um, midfield pairing is not ideal when you have Foden and Grealish and Jesus and Sterling a- ahead of you. And obviously, Guardiola wants to take out Gundogan from the, the Athletic game and Kevin De Bruyne sits on the bench for this match. But Liverpool, it just feels, have they might not have the, the, the depth in terms of numbers, but positionally, they have two or three players for each position that they can bring in and out of the team. And there's not really much of a drop-off. And I don't think City have done that as well. I mean, they spend £100 million on Jack Grealish last summer. By the way, contrast the impact that he's made at City to the one that Luis Diaz has made at Liverpool. Um, That's quite interesting. But it feels like that £100 million could have been spent smarter on different positions. And that is maybe, if they'd done that, then maybe this is the game where they get the benefit of that, where they can rotate in another top-class central midfielder. That means they don't have Bernardo Silva sitting in that deep role. I don't know. That was just one of my conclusions from this. All right. Well, uh, I think we've dissected this one pretty well. Congrats to Liverpool for advancing to the FA Cup final, where they will meet Chelsea. We will talk about Chelsea's win over Crystal Palace and some more Premier League action in just a moment. First, a word from today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back. We've talked about one FA Cup semifinal. Let's talk about another. Graham Ruthven, Chelsea with a 2-0 win over Crystal Palace. I thought this game was probably not quite as exciting and not necessarily back and forth as city liverpool because there wasn't a ton of back and forth in that first half but there was tons of action i did still really enjoy this one mostly because i did not look up what palace were doing before i started uh watching it and so trying to figure out their formation took me a good 20 minutes or so they were they made it very difficult to know what they were doing but i think they also made it very difficult for chelsea who in the end did find a way through and did get that win yeah to, to, to just kind of recap the whole match as a whole, it was a, a pretty underwhelming performance by Chelsea in, in the first half. I thought they were they were very slow at moving the ball. There, was, there wasn't much intensity to their play and, and Palace found it relatively easy to keep them at arm's, arm's length. Uh, Coyote has two good chances in the first half and Palace were ultimately made to rue those chances because Chelsea ramped things up for the start of the second half. They quickened things up a little bit and their, superior, uh, their quality shows through in the end. The plan, as you referenced there, Taylor, the plan from Chelsea, if from Palace, sorry, was largely to stifle Chelsea. They went five at the back and they kept them, generally, they kept them pretty na- narrow to prevent Chelsea from, from playing through the middle. However, I thought this came at a cost for, for Palace, who were never really able to get either Zaha or Eze into the match. And Elise, Michael Elise comes off the bench as well, and he doesn't have much joy when he comes on either. And so I, I left this match wondering if. Palace might have been better served playing to their natural, more open game, which is what they've been doing this season. They did that against Arsenal recently. They're having a good Premier League season. They don't normally play in this compact, conservative way, certainly not as often as they do in a a more open, attack-minded way. It might not have been the best tactic, because obviously then you're going toe-to-toe on an individual talent basis, and maybe Chelsea get the better of them then, but... It was slightly disappointing not to see a team that is capable of so much attacking verve not really pose much of a threat in, in such a big match. And uh, you could even argue that even when things weren't going so well for Chelsea, they, they never really felt threatened enough to, to feel out of control in the match. It always felt like they were going to f- find another gear or two, and that's exactly what they did in the second half. That's really interesting, Graham, because I think if anything, what you're doing is taking maybe a less like patronizing uh, approach than I am because for me watching Palace defend deep and at times I felt like you would have Mitchell who was the left wing back moving centrally on occasion to really clog the middle and it was almost a 4-2-2-2 uh, like early in, the, early in the game I thought they were doing different things to disrupt the way Chelsea wanted to attack and then ultimately sitting deeper getting numbers behind the ball having that kind of front two as the outlet but I think I'm coming at this from a, hey, it's Crystal Palace. They tried something. They went for it. Plucky underdogs. And I like, Graham, that you're taking a more. No, they're a very good team with a lot of good attackers. Yeah. They could have done more here, but maybe they were a bit too hesitant to do so. Joe, where are you on this one? Yeah, I think I, I lean towards what Graham is saying. It is fine. Graham, to your <laughs> to your point, it is like a real crapshoot as far as how you approach games against a team like Chelsea or any team that is that has a talent advantage on you, right? That's an undisputed fact here. Crystal Palace have been more aggressive in the Premier League this season. They average right around 50% possession, 5-0, which is good for a team of, of their stature relative to the other teams in the league. 
It shows what Patrick Vieira is trying to do and trying to build. They've been okay in terms of creating chances, but really what their possession has allowed them to do in the league is to really uh, limit the opposition's chances. They're one, two, three, four, fifth in the Premier League right now in expected goals allowed per 90. So they're not giving up any chances. City, Chelsea, Liverpool, and Tottenham are the only teams above Crystal Palace in the Premier League right now in terms of uh, limiting the opposition's shooting chances, according to FB Ref. That's that's legit, right? Like, that is extremely impressive for this Crystal Palace team, this Patrick Vieira team. Maybe, Graham, they would have been better served by being a bit more expansive and entrusting themselves to limit the opposition's chances, in this case, Chelsea, with their possession. But maybe that also would have backfired. And this is why I'm, I'm glad I'm not Patrick Vieira, why I'm glad I'm not an actual manager, because these choices are hard. Maybe sitting deeper was the right call, and, and if Ruben Loftus-Cheek doesn't hit that ball with the outside of his right foot, it's bouncing around in the box, just absolutely slapping it into the back of the net. Maybe if that doesn't happen or if Chelsea doesn't get their other goal, this game is is different. Of course it's different. But these are really difficult decisions to make. And I, I honestly don't know if Patrick Vieira did the right thing or not. Joe, two questions there. For, for First of all, I guess a comment. Uh, I appreciate that you spelled out the 5-0 on that percentage because I definitely thought you said 15 at first. Yeah. I was like, that's yeah. not a thing to brag about. <laughs> I realized. <But> this <laughs> second one, I guess another clarification. When you say they're fifth in XG... Uh, allowed after 90. Does that mean basically they're 15th, but that puts them in a like in fifth in terms of the the positive of the category? Does that make sense? Uh, let me just try to explain it this way. I'm not okay. sure if I totally understood that or not. Man City allowed the fewest, the, the lowest amount of XG per 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. So on a per 90 minute basis of anyone in the Premier League, then it's Chelsea, then it's Liverpool, then it's Tottenham, then it's Crystal Palace. They are gotcha. the fifth best team at limiting the opposition shooting chances. Is that better? There it is. Yes. Boom. Thank you. Thank you. Because for a minute I was jar. like, does that mean they've conceded a lot? Because no, they're, fifth? they're good. Now I'm good, with, yeah. good at defending in the defensive things. So obviously <laughs> math is tricky for me and numbers. But as you said, Joe, uh, decisions can also be tricky. I would say Thomas Tuchel got some things right in this one, Graham, especially the Kovacic having to come out, look like a sprained ankle. Who do you bring in? I think Ruben Loftus-Cheek proved to be the right decision. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that I love about Thomas Tuchel is the way he's always looking to use players in, in, in different ways, in slightly different ways. He's, he's always looking for gains within his squad. And he's he's got that with Ruben Loftus-Cheek in the last week or two. Last week, of course, he was used on, on the right side against Real Madrid to, to stop opposition breaks and to tuck inside to make up the numbers in the centre of the pitch. He was very effective in, in doing that. And here he was introduced off the bench to replace uh, the injured Kovacic in, in the first half, as you say, Taylor. And he gave Chelsea a, a lot of drive going forward. He scored. He scores the, the first goal. He's involved in the play that preceded the, the second goal. He was carrying the ball forward from deep. Um, and Crystal, that was one of the things in the second half Crystal Palace just couldn't, couldn't deal with. They just couldn't get bodies to stick to him when he was driving forward. And there was a, two or three opportunities where it just felt like he had the, the freedom of the Wembley pitch a little bit. And Loftus-Cheek, he's still not a central pillar of this team. You would still say in that midfield, which is his most natural position against Palace, he was playing in a more orthodox, um, familiar role for him over the, in terms of where he's played over the course of his career. He's he's not a first-team player yet. Even having played well in the last few games, you would still have Jorginho and Kovacic went fit and Kante ahead of him as well. But 
Tuchel is finding that he can use him to fill in gaps and keep the team together when others can't. And that versatility, he can play at right wing back. He can play on one of the wide positions in the front three if he has to. He can play in a slightly more advanced role. He's previously played in a a deep lying role in that midfield. He can play in the left or the right of a midfield trio. That versatility, I I think Tuchel is now realising is pretty important to his team and it's interesting that a few weeks ago there were reports about him leaving Chelsea and I saw a report this morning that says Chelsea are now not entertaining the idea that Loftus-Cheek is leaving the club in the summer so quite a dramatic turnaround in fortunes for him and quite a a solid goal from Ruben Loftus-Cheek no Joe Lowry oh my gosh I I cannot stop watching this goal like it's literally open on my phone right now the ball bounces towards Loftus-Cheek it's bouncing in the box and he comes to meet it and the way he hits it, it's like not fully with the outside of his right foot. It's it's almost in between the outside and the top of that right foot. And I, I used the word slap just a few minutes ago, and I, I think that is the perfect word to describe it. He just he just slaps it with his foot into the back of the net, and it is unreal. No goalkeeper, I think, is ever going to save that shot. He hits it so hard. And that, that goal gets Chelsea on the board in this game. They needed a goal. They hadn't created a, a ton in the attack prior to that moment. Getting something like that is what you need when your team hasn't really been able to create a ton of of super nice attacking chances. Just have RLC come off the bench and slap a ball into the back of the net. I don't know why everyone isn't doing it, Taylor. <laughs> yeah, they they tried to do the have Lukaku come off the bench and slap one in oh. as well. That, that did not work out. A rough day for Romelu Lukaku. A rough season for Lukaku. A rough day for Kai Havertz as well. Uh, his dive was maybe a 9 out of 10 if we're judging by Olympic diving, but a 0 out of 10 when it comes to... Uh, what he intended to happen, (laughs) unless he wanted that yellow card and everyone to boo him. But it was not all bad news for Chelsea attackers. Obviously, a 2-0 win means there were some goals scored. And I think we probably have to spend some time, Graham, talking about a certain Timo Werner. Yes, these are good days to be a Timo Werner apologist like myself. <laughs> uh, he is in excellent form at the moment and he had another good game here. He He's played as, as part of a front two alongside Havertz in each of Chelsea's last three matches against uh, Southampton, Real Madrid and Crystal Palace. They've won all three of those matches. Obviously, they go out of the Champions League against Real Madrid, but that wasn't due to the second leg result. They win that game, they go out in aggregate. And he's done a lot to freshen up that that Chelsea attack and just give them something a little bit different, give them a, give them an outlet. And I really like him in this role that he's playing at the moment. I mentioned it at the start of the season that he could play in this position, although I did also say it would most likely be alongside Romelu Lukaku uh, in that position. That hasn't panned out. But he is he's doing very well alongside uh, Havertz. It feels like they've got a good relationship, not just in terms of how they're interlinking with, with play, but also just in how they appreciate each other's space and where they should be on the pitch at the same time. And I think Werner's final product is is better when he's coming into the box from an angle or he's bursting to the byline, which he did a number of times in this game. He's got three goals and two assists in his last three games. And he uh, registered four key passes against Palace in, in this match, which was more than any other player on the pitch. And I think that reflects how his role has slightly changed. He was signed to be this 20-goal-a-season striker. And now I think Tuchel and Chelsea view him more as a facilitator to get more out of others, even though he has contributed a few goals himself recently um but yeah it feels like he's finding his role in this Chelsea team and my uh, my team of Werner shares have uh, never been more valuable uh luckily you do not own shares in Chelsea because I'm pretty sure they are not valuable or at least you cannot uh do anything yeah, with frozen. that value <laughs> uh yeah Graham it's it's a really strange time it occurs to me 
in London because we have, I mean, in this game alone, we have one London club losing to another, but the team that got the win have their ownership frozen. Gab Marcotti uh, was reporting before this game. There are three ownership groups still bidding to purchase Chelsea. Uh, the government has to be notified. There's an independent group who are evaluating those bids. Then the government has to be notified because a special license has to be given for the sale to go through. Marcotti said it could be resolved in May, but seems likely to drag on much longer. So uncertain times at Chelsea. Uh, Maybe short-term, not happy times at Crystal Palace, who lost this weekend. But then also, Arsenal losing, Spurs losing. Not a great weekend for London, Graham. No. What happens if uh, Wimbledon get relegated today as well? Oh, boy. Ryan gets really sad. That's what happens. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. Let's let's move away from making Ryan sad, because I'm assuming he's listening and probably already sad. Let's talk about Southampton's 1-0 win over Arsenal. Graham, is this more of the same that we've come to expect from Arsenal, which is starts starts sort of slow, doesn't look very convincing, then suddenly they hit their stride, everybody's great. I was totally of the mindset that Arteta had this figured out. They sell Aubameyang, it seems like they've gotten rid of a, a, a player that was a problem in the locker room, and instead now it feels like maybe they should have replaced Aubameyang. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not entirely sure what to make of Arsenal at the moment. That's That's now three defeats. In, in, uh, in a row in the league for them, four defeats in five games. And they are allowing that top four place that looked like almost certain to be theirs just a few weeks ago. They're, allow- they're allowing it to slip through their fingers. And as you say, the, the Obama-Yang thing is becoming an interesting discussion. because Obviously, hindsight is a wonderful thing. And at the time, I thought it was probably a good idea to get him out of the club. But I just wonder if their decision to let him leave and not replace him, that's the key thing, not bring in another striker has maybe cost them Champions League qualification because not for the first time in this match, it felt like they just they didn't have the cutting edge to convert chances. Yes, Fraser Forster has a, a very good game for Southampton in goals as the goalkeeper, but um, th- this is a, a familiar pattern for Arsenal now. Alexander Lacazette, who Arsenal fans have now dubbed lack of threat, uh, isn't really doing the job for them in, in the number nine position. And that game against Chelsea on Wednesday now, uh, Wednesday night, sorry, now feels absolutely huge for Arsenal. I, I personally don't think they can afford to lose that match. Um, otherwise, top four is, is probably gone for them. Hey, Arsenal fans, stay off my clever wordplay lawn, all right? But that is pretty <laughs> solid. I like lack of threat. Uh Grant, I will say, though, that in this game, Arsenal had their chances. Three huge saves from Fraser Forster kept this one, uh, got all three points for Southampton. So at least Arsenal can feel some level of solace knowing that they had some opportunities as opposed to Tottenham, who could have lost by way more at home to Brighton. Brighton, I think, really, really fun to watch. As fun as a team that is going to prioritize defensiveness at times can be because then they have their wingbacks who can bomb forward and get heavily involved in the attack. They can pop up and create opportunities. They've done really well with their recruitment, as I've talked about previously. So uh, I enjoyed this one from a Brighton perspective. I'm guessing uh, Tottenham fans less so. Absolutely. And th- and this was a, a bizarre performance by Tottenham, as, as you say there, Taylor, because they were just so flat throughout the match. They offered next to nothing over 90 minutes. That front three of Kulusevski, Kane, Son... Rarely do you go through a game where where they just don't have any influence on anything, but that was certainly the case here. Tottenham have had a full week's break as well. They were not involved in European competition during the week, so 
that was peculiar. And, and Brighton are, are determined to ensure that North London never sees the Champions League ever again. They're never going to hear that theme tune ever again because obviously they beat Arsenal last week. They have a, a win over Spurs this week. At least you can't accuse them of favouritism, I guess. And then they've got they've got Man City on Wednesday night as well. And they'll be they'll be dangerous opponents for for City too. But imagine that imagine if Brighton this summer managed to find uh even a 10 goal a season striker to lead that line the level that that would elevate that team that's surely got to be a priority for them this summer because it really does feel under Graham Potter like they're one of the teams that hasn't quite fulfilled their potential and could maybe even push up into those European places as I say if they find that right center forward it seems like we're going to have a fair few Premier League clubs looking for number nine options this summer. One of them might be Newcastle, who got a 2-1 win over Leicester. Graham, when we're talking about a lower mid-table club that could push on to European places, it feels like an appropriate time to talk about Newcastle. How long do you think before we see them pushing into those places? Could it be next season if they get their recruitment right? Because I would say they've they've done an okay job so far. They have they have done a good job, and I thought in this game Bruno Gomares was excellent. He scores both goals for for Newcastle, including a fairly dramatic diving header in in stoppage time, which was uh, even though it was slightly scrappy, there was something very aesthetically pleasing aesthetically pleasing about it. Um, and I think they've got they've got an absolute gem in him. He's he's the kind of player Newcastle should be looking to and and saying right that he sets the precedent for the kind of talent we're looking for in the, in the transfer market where he hasn't yet peached you know he's not coming to Newcastle for a paycheck although I'm sure he's on decent wages he's, he's coming to Newcastle to actually achieve things because he's that at that stage of his career and uh, yeah I think they they definitely could be pushing European qualification if they get the recruitment right in the summer that's six home wins in a row for Newcastle United so one of the key things that Eddie Howe has done is he's turned St James's Park into a bit of a fortress, as as much as a cliche as that is. But you look at the atmosphere at St. James's Park now, it's it's one of the best atmospheres in the Premier League now. The flags that they put on, I think they're all owned by the club. They're all put, the, the fans don't actually bring the flags, they're put on by the club. And that just adds to the atmosphere. And yeah, there's a lot of things to like about Newcastle at the moment, apart from, you know, who their owners are. <laughs> uh, I guess the opposite is sort of true for Manchester United and there's a lot of things to not like about them but you can also still dislike their owners you said Bruno Guimaraes setting the precedent at Newcastle my question for you is is Cristiano Ronaldo setting a positive or negative precedent for Man United he gets the hat trick uh, but I was watching match of the day for this one and they were saying it's one of those strange games where you end up heavily criticizing the team that won and praising the team that lost but that feels appropriate for the way this game played out yeah, I, I still don't have an answer to the Cristiano Ronaldo paradox that my United have at the moment. Is Ronaldo saving Manchester United or is he the one conde- condemning them? I'm sure I'm sure there is some uh, data analysts that have uh, more solid conclusions than I do, but watching with the eye test, it is very difficult to know. This was a, a flawed performance from Manchester United, as has become the norm this season. The goals that they concede from 2-0 up against a Norwich team that are bottom of the table are just stupid, stupid goals to concede. Uh, the way that Norwich are able to so easily get in behind them is, is, is a joke, quite frankly. And the sight of... When I think of Harry Maguire, I now think of him running back towards his goal slowly, I must add, and, and not really doing anything to affect, affect the play. He just seems to spend most of his time running back towards his own goal off the ball. 
And um, one thing we should mention about this game was before kickoff, thousands of My United fans gathered outside Old Trafford before the match to protest the Glazers' family uh, family's ownership of the club. And it really feels like there's a, a, a toxic atmosphere around United at the moment. There were, as I say, protests before the game, players being booed, Pogba being told to uh, leave in no uncertain terms and less polite terms, shall we say. Eric Ten Hag has a lot of work ahead of him and I, I do wonder if it might be too much, even for someone of his talent. So let's talk about that for a moment. There were reports after Ajax lost the KNVB Cup uh, 2-1 to PSV that Ten Hag was not a done deal when it comes to moving to Man United. Ajax officials speaking about how there were still attempts to keep him at the club, how they thus far had not heard anything official. So we're operating under the assumption that he would be there next season and are working very hard to keep him there. And on the one hand, it's Man United. It's a huge opportunity. And I think with the way things are, if there is the backing to go in and kind of stamp your authority uh, to control things as he wants to. It could be that chance to make this formerly great club very good again. I'm not using the phrasing of our former president. Uh, But uh, at the same time, as you said, Graham, there's so many issues with this current club and with the current squad. And how do you get everybody even just to kind of believe again, watching this game and watching that midfield three, not really know how to play together, not really have any sort of coordinated defensive plan. Watching uh, Victor Lindelof point at a wide open Norwich player for Alex Hellas to mark, but Telles is sort of jogging back, not really aware. Lindelof ends up having to try to get back over to make a play and he can't. It was just so dysfunctional in this team. And it also feels like maybe this team has bled into Ajax, who have now been knocked out of the Champions League, Joe, and have lost to PSV in this game. But to kind of set the stage from a more neutral perspective, Joe, you have had strong feelings towards Ajax. I think they've been uh, replaced lately by Villarreal. But when you were still in love with Ajax, when it was early days and it was all butterflies and rainbows, what did you like about Eric Ten Hag? What were some of the things you thought he was doing well for Ajax? Nothing's changed for me on Ajax. Just okay. FYI, I know I've, I've done the bit about them no longer being my best friend, and, and Villarreal are nine, my new best friends in the Champions League. But they lost good teams this lose game games. despite you, Joe. I know, because... I know they did. I get it. Don't 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 do this, Ajax. We can work this out. Don't hurt me. Uh, good teams lose games, and Ajax is a good team, and they lost a game, so that that stuff happens. I really like how they play. They're they're really aggressive in transition. They'll spread the field wide. They're really fluid. They they a lot of times in terms of personnel start in this four two three one shape, but it rarely, if ever, actually looks like that. They'll push a center back forward and, and leave just one player in the back, like a classic stopper-sweeper thing at times. Ryan Gravenberg will move really, really wide from central midfield, at least into the left half space, if not all the way out to the left wing at times. Anthony's electric on the right. Dusan Tadic is really strong on the left. Sebastian Haller lurks in and around the penalty spot. They are uh, an incredibly fun team, an electric team to watch, electric team to watch at times. They are effective with the ball. They're aggressive without it. I mean, they they have checked so many of the boxes, and we saw this in the Champions League, in the group stage especially. They checked so many of the boxes of just an elite, all-consuming, attacking, and, and even aggressive defensive team. And so then it, it makes me wonder what he does with Manchester United, because it does feel like maybe he stays at Ajax, but more likely, I think, based on the reporting, is that he does end up at Man United with some control over who's coming in, who's being let go obviously control over how the team is playing and their style of play and the training and everything like that but graham what would your advice be because we're obviously very qualified to ask this uh, or, or to answer this to ten hog knowing what we know about how he wants to play how he has ajax playing it seems like there's gonna 
be a lot of work to be done, as we've talked about with Manchester United. You could talk me into any position group being the one that is most in need of work. Uh, anyone in particular, any position in particular you think he needs to focus on right away? Well, my first piece of advice is do not answer Ed Woodward's calls, no matter what you do. Uh, he's, he's going to try. Really, and, would you would you say don't take the job? Is it kind of like do you feel it is poison chalice at this? No, point? no, I mean like because he's no longer ah, the chairman anymore. So oh, I see. <laughs> Richard Arnold's the new guy. So don't okay, don't okay. fall back into uh, Ed Woodward's and in, into his arms. Just ignore him and ostracize <laughs> him. I think he might actually still be a director, which can, would concern me if, if I was a Manchester United fan. But that the the midfield that Manchester United has at the moment would be where much of my focus is. Having said that, <laughs> I think Ten Hag will be concerned about pretty much every area of the of the Manchester United team. I was thinking about this before we started recording and he'll have concerns over the defence, he'll have concerns over the over the, the, the fullbacks, the wingbacks, he'll have concerns over the, the wide forwards, he'll have concerns over Cristiano Ronaldo, what to do with him. But the, the midfield feels like as a unit, it's going to need a lot of attention. Ten Hag likes his teams to play quick, uh, quickly in possession, and I just don't think United are good enough on the ball in the centre of the pitch. Even in games where they do have a lot of possession, they move the ball so slowly, which is a, a big reason why they have tr- such trouble breaking down low defensive blocks. And so that would be a, a primary area of concern. I'm actually going to... I wrote a piece last week and it was it was kind of playing devil's advocate with Ten Hag and United because there's so much negativity about he should run away from Manchester United, he should not answer their calls, he should not take the job. And I understand all that. They're, they're a mess, right? It's a big gamble for him in his career. This is maybe his big move that he gets in his career, so he needs to get it right. However, there is a lot to say that maybe it does go right from at Manchester United. Um, they've got a new chief exec or CEO or chairman, whatever his name is, Richard Arnold, who I've read seems to be more open to delegation than Ed Woodward, Ed Woodward was. They do have a footballing department now, Manchester United, for the first time. They've got John Murtaugh, they've got Darren Fletcher, there's been reports of Paul Mitchell coming in from um, Monaco. It doesn't seem like Ranić is going to be that heavily involved, but he's going to be uh, there in a consultancy role for two years. And Manchester United just haven't had those figures at all in, in the Ferguson uh, post-Ferguson era. Maybe those guys aren't very good at their job, but this is going to be the real test of, of that. The other thing in terms of the squad is, Ten Hag's going to have more freedom to shape this squad than any other post-Ferguson manager because of the number of players who are out of contract this summer. So you've got Edison Cavani, you've got Paul Pogba, you've got Juan Mata. Nemanja Matic said last week that he's leaving. Uh, Jesse Lingard is another. If you add up those wages, I think it accounts for about £1.2 million a week worth of wages which you would assume is going to go into new signings. So he does have, he's going to have more freedom and he's going to have more of a support system than other United managers have had. Whether that's going to be enough to catch City and Liverpool, I I don't know. But he might stand a better chance than many of his predecessors. I feel like we, talk, we end up talking plenty about Manchester United. If people have an athletic subscription, there's a really good article by Maram Albaharna, uh, basically going through every position group and talking about some of the issues. And it really is every position group. David De Gea not wanting to come off his line. Eric Ten Hag wants his goalkeepers to, to gamble and come for crosses. So how do you bridge that gap? Aaron Wan-Bissaka not being adventure enough in the attack from the right, right back spot. And then obviously the midfield, the attack, there's questions there. So there's many different issues. That article does a good job of breaking them down. Joe, anything you would like to add about Eric Ten Hag or Manchester United? I worry in the way that I worried about like Pulisic going to Man United and then American fans hating the club if he didn't progress the way we wanted. If Ten Hag doesn't have success, are you going to blame Manchester United and therefore me uh, for his <laughs> inability to turn things around? 
Probably. I, I think fair. Fair. it's too early to tell. I'm interested. Like, I'm intrigued by this, and I kind of hope that Ten Hag does end up at Manchester United because I think he's a good coach, and I think he has a decent shot of turning them around. But there are so many things that could go wrong, and that goes back to me wanting to see this happen because I will be entertained at the very least. There we go. Well, hopefully listeners remain entertained at the very least in this episode. Uh, we will be back in part three to just do a quick run through of Spain, Germany, Italy, and Major League Soccer. Should be short. Should be easy. We'll see how we do back soon. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back. As I said, it's roundup time. Let's get to it. Let's start in Spain. Real Madrid made it a 15-point lead between themselves and second place Barcelona. Sevilla now sit third ahead of Atletico Madrid on goal difference. Graham, does it feel like the wheels are, if not coming off, looking underinflated for Sevilla? <laughs> yeah, they, they have been losing air for a number of months now in the, the Sevilla tires. I have seen this match countless times from Lopetegui's uh, Sevilla, particularly in matches against Real Madrid. I, I knew this collapse was coming, so they were 2-0 up at halftime, and I tweeted at halftime when, when it was 2-0 that they would draw 2-2. In the end, I gave them too much credit because they obviously end up losing this match. And as soon as the second half starts, the dynamic completely changes. Uh, Rodrigo scores five minutes in after coming off the bench. And as soon as that goal goes in, you just you just know that Sevilla aren't going to aren't going to win this match. And this was kind of a microcosm of their season where they start off strongly and then kind of fade away to the point where actually at the end it's a bad result. And now they are kind of clinging on for that top four place. And if they were to fall out of that top four, then all of a sudden it becomes a pretty bad season for them. And as I said earlier, it's them and Atleti in third and fourth. Joe, I want to make sure you're sitting down, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm sitting. Okay, 
I just didn't want you to be too shocked when I say to Graham, Graham, in Atletico's 2-1 win over Espanyol, it sounds like there was a little bit of chaos for Atletico Madrid. <laughs> Ten men, a lot of uh, scrapping, and then a late winner. Who would have thought Atleti could produce drama? Yeah, I know, right? I mean, I don't know how much of a, of, of a summary I should provide for this game because it's basically just the summary for every Atletico Madrid game. Unlike the City game, though, they actually win. They get the the penalty late on in the 100th minute of this match. Yannick Carrasco, who actually um, scored the first goal, he scores his second and the winner very, very late on after Jeffrey Condogbia was sent off. Uh, RDT, Raul de Thomas, he leveled for Espanyol, but Atleti get the job over over the line. And as I say, they get the, the bit of luck in this match that they didn't get against City in the Champions League. So there will be drama for those final Champions League places, if not a title race. But we do have a title race in Italy, in Serie A. Milan are top with uh, Derby rivals Inter Milan just behind. Two, a two-point difference with a game in hand is all that separates them. Napoli in third place, five points back of Milan. Also have a game in hand. It's going to be a close one, Graham. Juve maybe not going to be as involved as we thought they might end up being. They had a one-to-one draw with Bologna this weekend. They did. Uh, they're now eight points off the top of Serie A. That, that defeat at home to Inter Milan a couple of weeks ago really really derailed any, derailed any momentum that they, they, they had. And it's, this season is most likely about finishing strongly to set up next season. Uh, Dusan Vlavic salvages a point in stoppage time here with a, an opportunistic header from a pretty incredible overhead kick uh, Marata assist. Assist. He, he reminds me of Timo Werner a, a bit, even when he does something brilliant, some someone else tends to benefit and he ends up uh, kind of sulking a little bit because I actually think he believed that overhead kick was heading into the goal. Replay showed it was heading wide and Vlavic did have to, did have to head it in. The best bit of this match, though, was Giorgio Chiellini doing some sort of Gene Simmons tongue waggle to which... Paolo Dybala's reaction cra- cracked me up for a solid 24 hours. He has no idea what he's looking at and just his his brows all furrowed. And yeah, Giorgio Chiellini's having way too much fun for a, in a match that Juventus didn't win. I did not see this and now I'm going to need to go find it. They're teammates though, right? Why was one trying to terrify the other? Nope, nobody knows. Chiellini okay. doesn't have any logic behind his actions. There's no logic to that man. <laughs> there's there's no logic there. There is uh, logic to having AC Milan and Inter be your top two teams uh, in the table because, man, does that create some drama drama for the run-in for the season. Graham, if you were guessing, who are you feeling more confident about based on current form? Oh, that's very difficult to, to answer because until recently I had pretty much counted out Inter. They had lost a bit of momentum. They then go away to Turin and beat beat Juventus and they beat uh, Spezia here, which has actually had the potential to be a tricky match for them, given that Spezia had, had beaten Napoli and AC Milan this season. So quite a, a bit of an impressive win for them. And from the, where they were just a few weeks ago, it's remarkable that they're now in the position where they can go top of Serie A with their game in hand. AC Milan also get a much needed win this weekend. They had been stuttering in, in recent matches. Their defence is, is brilliant. Um, I think they now have six straight clean sheets in the league and if they win the Scudetto that'll be the difference but I, I do wonder if maybe they're lacking in attack they they have drawn a blank I think it's a, uh, they've drawn a blank in three of their last four games they scored twice at the weekend here but I, I honestly couldn't call it I would maybe edge towards AC Milan slightly ever so slightly but it feels like there's twists and turns every single weekend in, in Serie A at the moment 
Less so in the Bundesliga, where Bayern uh, got their win and likely will get another title. A 3-0 win for Bayern over Armenia. Uh, some technology had to be used. I think there's a penalty for one of the goals. I think there's a VAR check for offside for the second. But Bayern, with the win, Nagelsmann made some changes. Yeah, it was it was a routine, if slightly lethargic, victory for, for Bayern Munich. As you say, Nagelsmann makes a, makes a number of changes. Marcel Sabitzer was allowed to see daylight for the first time in months, so that was good for him. <laughs> uh, French teenager... They let him out? They let yeah, him out of... <laughs> they know, did, yeah. Oh, that, that, de- that dark room in the Allianz Arena. They, they, were, they unlocked the door for this one. Uh, Tange Nianzu, who's not a player I'm terribly familiar with, uh, started in central defence, a, a French teenager... And as you say, Taylor, Bayern will win the Bundesliga with a a win over Borussia Dortmund this weekend. That will officially get them over the line. And it was actually a weekend in which a number of title races across Europe were essentially settled. In France, you had PSG beating Marseille 2-1, and they're now 15 points clear with six games left to play. And in Portugal, Benfica beat uh, Sporting Club de Portugal 2-0 and are now nine points clear with four games to play. And then, as we've already mentioned, you have La Liga, where Real Madrid are 15 points clear with six games to play. So we're reaching conclusions across the European leagues. That we are. Uh, But we still have some other interesting games going on, at least in the Bundesliga, where we had Leipzig getting a 1-0 win over Leverkusen. Should note, Tyler Adams uh, started this game, was on the pitch for the goal, which always makes me happy. But Graham, if we're giving credit to maybe a Leipzig player who makes the difference for that club, I'm assuming you're not going to give it to Tyler Adams. Well, I give him some credit for this match. And actually, Tedesco gave him a giant hug as he he came off the pitch. I think he was subbed off towards the end, which kind of says that he is a player that Tedesco values and recognizes he's not had the game time that he would he would want in recent matches. So that, that was nice to see from a, a US perspective. But this match really didn't get going until Christopher and Cuckoo came off the bench in the second half. And RB Leipzig, just they sprung into life. Within minutes, they're creating. And they're, they're just a different team when he's on the pitch and this was another result that showed the turnaround in Leipzig season in the four months since Tedesco took over RB Leipzig have gone from 11th in the Bundesliga where they had 18 points from 14 games to third in the Bundesliga and now they have 54 points from 30 games they're also in the Europa League semi-finals and the DFB Pokal semi-finals as well so all of a sudden this could be a pretty memorable season for for Leipzig after a pretty dismal start. Grant, as you said, it was a nice uh, thing to see from a U.S. perspective, this result for Leipzig. But because we can't have nice things, John Brooks was the lowest rated outfield player for Wolfsburg <laughs> in their 6-1 to loss to Borussia Dortmund. But a good result for Dortmund. Yeah, and, and two wins in a row for Dortmund now. Heady days, heady days for the Black and Yellows. Um, yeah. 6-0 up after 54 minutes with Haaland scoring twice. It could have been uh, even worse. For Wolfsburg and for John Brooks, but um, in terms of Dortmund, I, I don't really know how to assess them at the moment. It feels like they've they've yet to decide which direction they're heading in before the summer. Although I would say a few more results like this, and Marco Rosa probably gets the start of next season as a, a second chance to to make a first impression. So, so this 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 result certainly eases some of the pressure on him. Joe, I feel a desire to ask you questions about John Brooks and what this result might mean for him. But the answer is we don't know. And it doesn't seem like much is going to change with John Brooks for the foreseeable future. So should we just talk about MLS instead? Let's do it, Taylor. Let's talk Let's some MLS. Do it. Where there was no drama at all and everything was calm, except that except that Matias Almeida is reportedly finally out in San Jose. He's the first coach to be sacked this season. 
we're not technically there, but it seems mm-hmm. like this is happening. He uh, got into some sort of verbal altercation with the fan in the halftime at halftime of this 2-2 draw with Nashville. That happened on Saturday. That's happened before. He's not going to his press conferences. This just doesn't make sense. He probably shouldn't have been here to start the season, but it seems like this is finally happening. And this means, guys, that Chris Wondolowski reportedly, Jeff Carlisle reported this, I believe. Maybe somebody else had it, but I saw it from, from Jeff Carlisle's timeline on Twitter that Wando is going to be an assistant coach on the interim staff, which I totally love after he retired last season. San Jose needs something new. They don't need rocket science to help fix this team. There is talent here. I think having someone who plays in a just non-ridiculous kind of man-marking way that did work for a while for San Jose, it really did, but it, it just doesn't work anymore, and they're not all that inspiring with the ball. It just feels like the Almeida magic has worn off. So San Jose, I think you guys are headed in a better direction now than you were a couple of days ago, but again, still too early to tell. We don't know officially who the interim coach is going to be. We don't officially know that this is happening at all, but it really feels like this is going to go down. Joe, for people who haven't been tracking the San Jose situation, what it keeps reminding me of, there's an episode of Seinfeld when George, who's then working for the New York Yankees, gets a better job for the New York Mets, but he can't take it without getting fired. So he has to find increasingly public ways of disrespecting the organization (laughs) to then be fired. I think he eats like strawberries while wearing Babe Ruth's uh, Hall of Fame (laughs) jersey. He then, I think, drags the World Series trophy behind his car while speaking to a megaphone about how bad the organization is. (laughs) That feels roughly akin to what Matias Almeida has been doing. It does, except Almeida's just not showing up to his uh, like contract <laughs> appointed uh, public meeting. So I think it is it is the same in its oppositeness. Taylor, you're right. Yeah, there. <laughs> but it, it like if you are you putting any blame anywhere, or is it just sort of everybody feels like they don't want to be there, they don't want to work together anymore. So let's just kind of like blow this up and hit restart. Yeah, I mean Almeida should be doing the things that his contract says he should be doing. So this there's blame there, and San Jose should be paying more for stuff and spending money. Although, like, you can still win an MLS without spending money. The Philadelphia Union do that. Colorado Rapids do that. There's teams in this league that don't, you know, blow the the budget on high-profile transfer signings. San Jose certainly don't do that, but it feels to me like the coach is holding back their roster, which I think is decent, at least in areas. He's holding back their roster from actually being any good. So there is blame to go all the way around here, Taylor. Uh, If we're going the opposite of blame, maybe we should give credit to NYCFC, who looked rather strong in their game against RSL. (laughs) Yes, they put a a touchdown without the extra point past RSL, a 6-0 victory. Tati Castellanos scores four in this game. Tiago Andrade gets the other two. This performance feels like it it had been coming, felt like it had been coming for NYCFC after they, they get balanced by Seattle in the semifinals of the CONCACAF Champions League. Seattle will now face Pumas in the two leg final. NYCFC created a bunch of chances in the second half against Seattle on Wednesday. So it felt like they they were creating the right moments, just not finishing off those moments. And oh, look, a 6-0 win. They're now finishing off moments. So this team is incredibly talented, even without Maxi Morales, who's out with a, a trunk injury. He's dealing with, I believe, some sort of rib issue. But he uh, he's the heart and soul he of this trunk. team in the, in the chance creation <laughs> category. No one knows, Graham. No one knows. And that's why we were all confused when NYCFC labeled it as a trunk injury. It's it's uh, it's baffling. But NYCFC, very good team. They're 10th in the Eastern Conference right now. I would be shocked if they weren't climbing pretty aggressively over the next month or so. But I think that speaks to the sort of chaos of Major League Soccer. At present, we also had Toronto beat Philadelphia Union 2-1 to on Saturday. No 
unbeaten teams in the league anymore and a lot of good teams who are capable of making the playoffs and going deep and a lot of teams that maybe haven't quite figured themselves out at this point joe who do you think is the strong if you're like saying right now based on current standing plus the way they've been playing who would you say is the strongest team in the league at present I'd be hard-pressed to pick between LAFC and Philadelphia. I know Philly lose right. this weekend, but they're still so really good. They are. They know exactly who they are. They play within themselves. They're in this 4-4-2 diamond every single week. They're aggressive. They're direct. They have two forwards get in the box. They have Daniel Gazdag make runs out of that number 10 spot, and they get really good service, especially from Kai Wagner on that left side. I think they're an excellent team. I also think LAFC under Steve Terundolo, Look, he hasn't made a ton of sweeping tactical changes, nor should he have, right? His personnel changes is the big story for that team. They're not perfect. There's some issues in midfield in terms of ball progression, but they're a really good, really talented team. The question around them right now is, is Carlos Vela going to be back? His contract expires over the summer. Maybe he's brought back, and if so, is that a DP contract? Might that potentially be on a TAM deal? That's a a huge question for John Thornton in this front office right now. Either way, those two teams, I think, are excellent. And, And Taylor, to get to the broader point there that you mentioned, there's no more unbeaten teams left in Major League Soccer. I really like that. Like, I, I like that there are, I like that there's this underlying element of, of parity. And it's maybe not the same way that it used to be in that, oh, you know, Inter Miami, even if they, they mess up their squad, they can still contend for the spot, the top spot in the Eastern Conference. That's not going to happen, right? There's too much of a gap now between the teams that know what they're doing and, and build rosters well and are well coached and the teams that don't do that stuff. At the same time, you can see upsets happen on any given week in a way that I just don't think you can see around the world. Maybe that's my American sports fan that it, maybe it's the American sports fan in me that likes that so much, but I really appreciate that MLS is so chaotic. I think it makes a really good TV at times. I think it makes a really compelling storylines and it, it just makes soccer more interesting as the year progresses. I, I really like that concept, but I find it in, in practice in terms of what teams to watch and what games to watch r- really difficult. Not that I really get a choice in the UK because in the UK we only get really three teams. Yeah, Inter Miami, NYCFC, and LAFC or LA Galaxy. One They rotate them on the weekend. Those are basically the only three teams that we ever get on British TV. But I think with every league, and look, this is this is maybe just me as someone who doesn't watch as much MLS as you do, Joe. I think you watch kind of every match in MLS in the weekend. I will, with most leagues, I will pick out teams that okay, they're good to watch or they're on a good run. They're you know they're they're going to challenge for the title. And with MLS every weekend, just because there's so many fixtures as well, I, I'm I kind of struggle to pick pick those teams out. So maybe at the moment I would do it with LAFC. I've watched a couple of Austin games because they've started the season well and they, they're they're quite fun to watch. Um, in the past, I've kind of uh, gravitated towards Seattle Sounders games to watch them. But this season, as you say, there's so much parity. I, I kind of, my eye is drawing everywhere and I don't really know where to look. So as a, as a fan, that is the one downside, I would say. Yeah, totally fair. I think it, that irons itself out a little bit, maybe after you get a couple of months into the season. We're just yeah. past, I think, the the six-week, seven-week mark now. So it is a little more confusing now. It will settle somewhat, but Graham, I, I totally take your point. It does get a little challenging to do that. Joe, the way I understand Major League Soccer regular season is you have like the beginning, which is maybe the first three to five games when you're seeing teams for the first time this season. Maybe some players are coming back from injury or aren't quite starting yet, and you're sort of figuring it out. Then you've got the figuring it out stage after that, where maybe that's like up until like 10 or 12 games in, where you're still learning who is going to be the dominant team, who had to figure some things out and is now a strong team, or who needs to do some work to become a good team. Then there's 
the summer where it gets a little bit dull and you kind of know how things are. And then you have the the tail end of the season when everybody's chasing playoff spots. That's basically my summary for the way Major League Soccer plays out. Agree or disagree with that one? No, I think that's true. It is the feeling each other out stage at the beginning of the year where we're trying to figure out what teams are and who they are and, and who's good and maybe who's not so good. Then the summer is a grind and there's a lot of games and there's too many games at times and there's fewer midweek games this year to, to give credit to MLS. But then you get into the fall and you work your way into playoffs. And I think things really start to re-energize. Like teams are, are re-energized at that point in the season as they can sort of see the finish line. No, Taylor, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. What doesn't make sense to me, Joe, is how DC United can orchestrate the master set piece theater set piece that they did and get that goal and yet still lose and be bottom of the table. Can you make DC United make sense to me? Is Losada a good manager? I have questions. I think Losada is a good manager. I just don't think the squad is very good. Like they have talent, but they're not on par with a lot of other teams in this league. Austin, I think are actually in a similar boat. I don't, I don't love their squad, but I think Josh Wolf is a pretty good head coach. So I wouldn't overreact to anything as far as DC United goes. It was a beautiful set piece. I tweeted this out and I know you saw it, Taylor, because you retweeted it from the TSS account. Oh, I love it's it. Ola Kamara it so swooping around from like the, the back post area just on the weak side of the box and he swoops around as DC play it short on the right side and he comes to meet the ball above the penalty spot but in the center channel of the box. And it's a great look. I love that set piece design from DC United. They're they're fine. They're aggressive. They're in any game because of, of how aggressive and, and vertical their style is. But I don't think anyone should be expecting that they finish towards the top of the East. That was never going to be realistic with the talent, really the lack thereof of, of talent in D.C. In Austin, I think, in, are in a similar boat. They're, they're on a pretty good run of form right now, at least in terms of their point total. They're in a good spot in the Western Conference. I'm not sold on them. I, I think they have whiffed on a, a few too many signings to be a really dangerous team in year two right now. But, but still, there is talent there for sure. And I like a lot of the tactical stuff that they do under Josh Wolf. And to be fair, both DC United and Austin only started their existence, what, two years ago, right? No, so for sure. DC United totally have excuses <laughs> same for why they're in the same position as Austin. Same timeline, Taylor. You get it. Oh, fun times for me, a DC United and Manchester United fan. Life is good. Life is great. Let's just add some more misery to that. While I go uh, cry, Graham, anything else from you regarding Major League Soccer or anything else uh, that we haven't yet talked about? No, I, I just think it's it's a pretty fun season so far. Yeah, and buddy. if I could pin down a few teams, as I say, LAFC and Austin have been my two teams so far. Um, I agree with a lot of what Joe says about Austin, but they've had a lot of fun games, including one at the at the weekend there. Um, but if I could just pin down a few more teams that I know are going to be consistently good, then I'd be happy with that as the casual fan that I am. <laughs> All right. Well, we will keep watching some Major League Soccer as casual fans, but also as people who want to talk about it on this show. And then maybe we'll take a break in the summer when everybody seems to take a break in the summer. Just kidding. We'll be around. We'll be around. Joe, especially. Uh, Joe Lowry, thank you so much for talking about the weekend that was with me today. And I look forward to talking about Americans in action with you tomorrow. Oh, yeah. You got it, Taylor. Uh, Graham, the exact same thing to you. Thank you. I am doing the Giorgio Chiellini uh, tongue <laughs> dance <laughs> and i am appropriately horrified on my end i assume for now listeners thank you so much for listening we'll talk to you all again very soon 